What did you eat for breakfast? Well, I woke up 10 minutes ago, so I haven't <laughs> eaten anything yet. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 77. Sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and a range of other services. Go to theskinnyarmadillo.com to learn how they can help you get your merch business to the next level. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps the podcast get in front of more people just like you who want to learn from the successes, strategies, and failures of artists and entrepreneurs that I talk to. I really feel that the information coming from those guests is exceedingly valuable for the musicians community and anyone wanting to pick up tips from other people's experiences. William Chernoff hails from New Westminster, a city in the vicinity of Vancouver, British Columbia, and is a jazz and folk bass player and composer that is set to release his first album in October of this year. William shares how he was exposed to jazz in high school, his history in the local music scene, and a summer he spent in Copenhagen for the sake of his own emotional growth. We take a deep dive exploring the music industry and compare the lack of funding in the US versus the various grant sources that are available in Canada. William also shares a track from his new album at the end of the episode. This week, I've been spending a fair amount of subconscious bandwidth contemplating my place in the universe and how I can further improve my own health and well-being in order to increase my output and therefore positive influence on the world at large. Now, I'm not sure what this really means long term, and I hadn't given it much conscious thought until I started exploring my ramblings for this episode. That being said, I'm going to be building a vegetable garden area over the coming months to be ready for spring, so that's bound to result in some holistic leveling up. I'm also gearing up for a mini vacation during which I plan on doing a great deal of reading in the form of Atomic Habits, which I mentioned a few episodes ago, and also the new version of Ari Herstan's book, which I'm long overdue to finish up. I'm always looking for new avenues of knowledge expansion, so let me know what books you've read recently and what you recommend. To finish up this section of the episode, I just want to share this one quote. In an age of performative cruelty, kindness is punk as fuck. Be punk as fuck. Here's my chat with William Chernoff. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by uh, William Chernoff, who is a, uh, a bass player out of New Westminster, which is near Vancouver. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Nice to meet you, Simon. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, you you made the mistake of sending me uh, prior listening material for, for um, podcasts, so... I can tell listeners that you are a Leonard Moulton uh, impersonator, and you also, <laughs> you also play post-folk emo jazz core. Oh, that's original content, though. I don't know where you would have found that. 
So the 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 uh, podcast you sent me, you were talking about um, different. Actually, the host was talking about different um, rock genres and subgenres. I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but now, so um, if you wouldn't mind just giving a background to you know what your music sounds like, uh, you know what you do for a living day to day, and you know who you are. Every day is different because every day has been part of an independent journey in music and that's been the case since I was a young teenager. I started to get the chance to play professionally around age 15 mm -hmm. and I tried my best but I wasn't very well practiced so I continue to get better as I learn from my friends who are the same age and also very keen. Mm -hmm. I took that to music university but I left after a year then I juggled a bunch of different contracts to start my young career, including co-founding a band, working in nonprofit arts, having many small clients. And then a couple years ago, I wanted to do something with the jazz music that had always been with me the whole time. So last year I started to write and record jazz music for release. I had already written jazz for the past eight years going on a decade now, but mm. at that time I decided to start doing music under my own name for the first time, and that's where I'm spending most of my time in COVID times, because I've been working on my first album, which is called Aim to Stay, and it's going to come out in October 2020, Nice. and I still have the band, I still have some clients, I started a media company during COVID to broadcast artists out of a studio here in New Westminster. Mm -hmm. So it's a mixed bag and every day is different. That's fantastic. Um, so you, I mean, let's talk about your clients just a second. Um, I would imagine because Canada has kind of a, a, a strong uh, financial backing from the, you know, from the government, um, it's probably a lot easier to make a living out of nonprofits and, you know, uh, well, I say nonprofits, but out of the the uh, the arts councils there versus the uh, you know the U.S. has no funding. So, um, could you talk a little bit about that and what what your uh, clients kind of look like, as much as you can share, I guess. Well, first I'll talk about what the different funders are because the mm. ecosystem in Canada is quite interesting, especially if you're unfamiliar with it or if you're from a country where the public arts which is just my catch-all term for funding that comes in some way through the government in part or whole to musicians, music companies, presenters, etc. If you come from a country where that isn't common, Canada's system might interest you, and I would be curious to know what you think of it. So mm. there are a few different levels, and the top level is the federal one, the one from the federal government. And... The first body of note there is called the Canada Council for the Arts. And that organization funds projects that are big a lot of the time and that contribute to the lasting strength of Canadian arts. And one example is, I'll shout out my friend Chelsea, who lives in Toronto on the other side of Canada, who has toured with a jazz big band made up mm. of mostly people of my generation and written original music for it and recorded it. And Canada Council has been part of that. So you can imagine there are projects like that that are so huge. You could you can never mm. imagine them getting off the ground without these kind of 
concept to realization public arts uh, sources of funding fuel. Absolutely. So Canada Council is great for things like that. And it definitely also supports nonprofit organization projects. Then tangential to the federal government, you have an organization called Factor, which okay. stands for the Foundation Assisting Canadian Talent on Recordings. Uh-huh. And Factor is a public-private partnership in a way because it's partially run by the federal government, I believe, and also by Canada's private radio broadcasters. So I guess a trust or a or a fund or a, a collective of all the institutions that have broadcasted on Canadian radio over time. And Factor is a juried sound recording grant. So anytime you want to make an album, you can pitch that album project to Factor. And based on partially what they think its commercial viability is, mm. and perhaps even more so just how much they like your music and how much they believe in your creative product, they'll give you a project grant for that. So I've received a factor grant once for myself and it was last year and it was the smallest one that was available because mm. if you write that one, you can get a sense of what you could do with it in the future with a real sized one. Right. So the first one I did basically paid for one studio session of mine and all the bells and whistles associated. So booking the studio, hiring the session musicians, doing the mixing, doing the post-production that was all that it had but there are bigger factor grants that are available to more established artists and factor actually sets general criteria for um for how big you're supposed to be to get one of these things and you can definitely be at those criteria on some metrics and not there on others like you could be playing enormous live gigs but you could not have very much of an online following or vice mm -hmm. versa and you could probably still get it but okay that's factor so those are the federal ones now i live in the canadian province of british columbia on the west coast and there is another suite of public arts grants available there from mm. creative bc which is administered by the province and they have multiple programs and then Music BC, which is a, an industry organization, like a trade organization, they also have some. And then there's the BC Arts Council, if you're a nonprofit. And then if you go down another level, there's the municipal grants. So the city of Vancouver, the, the um, what's it called? This is funny that I'm blanking on this one. Um, the North Vancouver Recreation Commission, the this smaller municipality here, you know, many municipalities in this area have uh, their own arts councils that um, mostly nonprofits, but also a handful of artists can apply to here in New Westminster, City of New Westminster grants. So cool. All this to say that the um, the grant universe was very compelling to me because my interest. Mm -hmm is at the intersection of business and music. And that is an area where I could immediately start to apply my skills because there was a need there from mm. a diverse group of clients. And I really enjoyed learning about it 
as I went. And the main arena for me learning about that was I worked for a nonprofit that ran a violin and strings education organization. Mm-hmm. And I started out as a hired bass player for them when I was 18 years old. And then over time, I grew to be the number two person in that small organization. And then I kind of crashed out of it because I didn't really have all the experience I needed to hold that position together. But mm-hmm. I learned a lot along the way. Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic information. Um, so I guess musicians, let's all move to Canada. <laughs> yeah. US-based musicians. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it brings me back to a, a, another interview I did with uh, a band called Isbjörg, which are based in um, Denmark. Um, and they have they have some, you know, some laws to, you know, the for instance, venues have to play a certain type of genre mix you know a percentage so that their thing was we're such a niche um band that we're almost um that's why we get to play because they have to book us because we we don't have a lot of competition um which is it's kind of cool and that you know that i think uh, those type of um those type of um organizations or, or funds or whatever um I mean, it, it's so healthy to have that kind of culture, um, you know, investing in culture. And in this, I mean, what I what I see in this country, because there isn't that investment in the culture and the, the arts are being kind of uh, defunded and in schools, it's not funded. Um, you almost get this kind of bootstrapping backlash where people are doing it themselves anyway. Um, so I don't know... Do you think that makes the artists that rise above it kind of stronger? Or, I don't know. Yes, I do. Yes, I definitely do. I identify with that angle, Mm. even though there's this public arts infrastructure, and even though I've been servicing projects in that environment, uh, my preferred angle is that, one where you have a bit of a chip on your shoulder and that's Mm. how I've been doing it when I'm operating independently here, making my jazz music from end to end by hiring whoever I need and making sure I pay everybody as best I can and hoping to continue that into the future and having it be a little less stressful for me someday, Mm. but trying to set the tone early, you know? Right. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, let's dig into your past. What what got you into music in the first place and what made you choose bass? Now we'll be revisiting the public impact on investing in the arts too because I'm definitely a product of my high school music program. Mm-hmm. Here in New Westminster where I went to high school, I got to ride this wave of talented people my own age who wanted to hang out in the band room after school every day and jam together, play jazz tunes, listen to recordings, sometimes transcribe Mm. them, sometimes write tunes, sometimes rehearse them for little live gigs that we do in the community, either by going out ourselves and asking people for them or through the help of our band teachers. And we had four band teachers in our high school music department who were endlessly supportive of us. And I'm really Mm. grateful for that. And also just for the company of my classmates who 
many of whom have gone on to be excellent musicians already. Awesome. But I mean, even before that, what drew you in? That's it. That's where it started. When I showed up in high school, I basically hadn't really played before. I was at an elementary school that didn't have a band program, and then it got one yeah. uh, a couple of years before I left there. So I participated in it casually, but mu I never thought about music, and I didn't really grow up paying attention to music at all. Like My mom loved a lot of kinds of music and sang mm. sometimes with a Beatles songbook and some other things, but... For me, no, I had no interest in it. I was a gamer. I liked to hang out with my friends online in the Web 2.0 years, even though we were too young to fully participate in it. And music was not a big interest for me whatsoever until I showed up there in high school and met those people because it's all about the people. And once you're in yeah. that good company, then you're going. But before then, no, that's where it started. So it's kind of just peer pressure. You you weren't forced into it. It's just like, oh yeah, well, well I guess I'll do that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, that's that's totally true because my first instrument was alto sax, and mm -hmm. then you show up in high school having played a couple notes on the alto sax in elementary school, and there's twenty alto saxophone players in your concert band in high school, and it's like, well, okay, I probably would better serve this situation if i switched instruments and they tell you that the band teachers will say hey does anybody want to play tuba or bass or something so yeah so people like me ended up switching instruments that's a different kind of peer pressure mm -hmm. so did you uh did you start on like upright bass or was it all electric at that point i started on upright bass yeah and i always played electric bass as pretty much every bass player does mm -hmm. and I played out of that high school community almost exclusively for several years until I started working more with violin students and that's in the folk music environment, not classical. I've never been a classically educated or a, never been a classically educated musician or one who participates in classical music. That's right. outside my domain of knowledge completely, but uh, folk music Celtic music, world music, Irish-influenced music. That entered mm. my career around age 19, and then I had something else to explore other than jazz. And yeah, I've listened to other kinds of music along the way, but I've often felt trapped in listening or only spending time listening to the music that I play. So mm. I've listened to a lot of jazz and Irish influenced music for that reason. And I've tried to keep up some other listening habits along the way. Awesome. Um, and going back to Denmark, so I'm, I'm kind of chopping around here, but um, I did mention, you know, Ishbjörg, I did hear on one of your, on the episodes you were, you were featured on that you spent some time in Copenhagen. Yeah. When I was uh, 20 years old, I, kind of ran away to Copenhagen mm. because I wasn't being very nice to myself. And that's still the case these days. But over time, a big theme for me has been that I just beat up on myself a lot. Mm. And I really felt like I needed to get away from this community. And what I'm talking about is I grew up in this Vancouver, BC, Canada jazz community from 
a relatively young age and I participated in it so bombastically even when I didn't have very much experience not only as an instrumentalist but life experience social mm. experience I didn't know how to be nice to people or how to have good relationships with people even though I was going around and trying to play 150 gigs a year mm. when I was 17 18 19 years old and I have no doubt that uh I didn't have a clean slate of positive interactions with a lot of the core people in that very small community. Mm. And when you have a small community like that, it's important to eventually learn how to get along with those folks, mm -hmm. not just for cynical reasons, but just that if you'll be miserable in the community, if you don't figure that out. And at that age, that is how I felt. And even if I look back on it now, five years later, it does feel simple enough that I could have just let it improve over time. And if I didn't get too negative with myself about it, eventually I would have learned some more of those social skills and I would have just been able to roll it over and stay there and my relationships would improve across the board. But that's not how it felt at the time. Mm. At the time, it felt like I really needed to get away um, either just as a, a break, a significant one that allows me to reset or as a full detachment. So I had already been fascinated by Copenhagen because I like to read and learn about and observe urban affairs and urbanism and how cities have changed in my lifetime and leading up mm -hmm. to it. And Copenhagen was to me a, a mecca for that school of thought. Mm -hmm. So, and my mom had been to Copenhagen the year prior and said it was amazing. And that sealed the deal for me that confirmed within me that I wanted to go there someday. But when I right. felt so pessimistic at age 20, I just decided to go and I went for the maximum length of time that you can stay in the Schengen area if you're from Canada, which is 90 days. So I went during the summer and I stayed through the fall. Uh, I rented a basement suite outside of Copenhagen, just barely so I could bike downtown in 30 minutes to an hour, depending on where I was going. Mm -hmm. And I took in a lot of music. I met new people. I, I had a break. I had a serious, serious break. Uh, and I had a lot of time for self-exploration at that time. And that doesn't mean I came back feeling great. I, I came back still feeling like I had crashed out of something. And it took a while, took another six months to build that up before I met some more people that were really mm. positive influences on me over the next couple of years. But it was an escape and it was a pilgrimage and it was something that I won't ever be able to recreate again. Right. That's great. You know, I think, I think something like that is very important for people. Do you, do you think you came away with a, a, a much more uh, worldly view? Like, I don't know how the diversity of, of different, um, cultures there are in your part of the part of the world but um obviously i you know i think everyone should travel 
you know a ton because it, it opens up your mind to i always describe it as you know you you know um you know maslow's hierarchy tells us that everyone it has the same needs but on the on the uh the flip side that the the dichot the beauty of di uh, the uh, dichotomy of beauty or the beauty of dichotomy of the human condition is that we're all the same but we're all completely different i i kind of butchered that but um no i just i just find it it really uh interesting to go see how other other cultures and communities uh operate and just like i like to see the the similarities and the differences yeah, so uh, one thing that you uh, that I read is that or listened to is that you want to uh, you want to do a podcast of you uh, a podcast yourself at some point. Um, and do you do you have a timeline or is that still just like a, a an idea? And what would it be about if you did? That's very timely because I'm definitely waiting until after I finish this album campaign to get that going. But this will be an interesting time right now to reflect on what that would be about. One of the things that I started doing in the last month or two was I started setting up to do Canadian jazz independent journalism, for lack of a better word. Uh, again, it's a green field for me, something I don't have a background in, but something I'm excited to explore because I would look for it and find that there isn't much going on in that space there's a lot of room for even one person mm. to come in and start covering the projects that musicians are doing here the gigs that they're doing here interviewing them and i would eat all of that up if i knew where it was but i just suspect that mm. there's not much of it going on and why i think it's because all the most active people in the canadian jazz network are both fully committed musicians and educators and so mm. there's no there there's no uh time left for them to add this other layer to it even though they would be the most eminently qualified people to report on what's going on either in their local jazz community or in the canadian jazz community but I think because I'm not an educator and because I'm not an out-and-out -out professional musician, this would be an interesting place for me to explore because I really would want to read it if it was there, and I notice it's not there, so I might as well try. So to that end, yeah. in July, at the beginning of the month, I started publishing some writing every week. So I've been writing most mm -hmm. days. Hopefully I'll get an everyday habit in my life eventually but so far i've been scrambling together to publish thoughts every week on how music commerce is changing and how we should change it if we want to make it better and how independent artists are the way going forward and what we've known as the music industry either doesn't exist or is being propped up or doesn't match the current conditions so much in the experience mm. I've had so far in my young career. So I've been writing about that and 
I'm building towards interviewing people about that as well, as I find people who are willing to engage with me on the record about it here in Canada. And once I, once I become skilled enough to write a little bit more often and a little bit more consistently, then I can cover things. So I can cover the gigs that are going on in my local community. I can cover projects that my friends are releasing or that they're working on in some cases. If I have some exclusive knowledge of that, maybe there's a way that we can share it. But mm. I think that Canadian jazz journalism is such a niche thing that it would benefit a lot from a resource or a publication where musicians felt confident that they would get covered well, which sounds really simple, but it's not really because when you're trying to publicize a release campaign for your music, if you have existing press contacts, that's great because you have a relationship with them and you know what to expect. But if you don't, either you're paying a lot of money for uncertain results mm -hmm. or you're reaching out to people for very uncertain results and you're not sure how they will cover your music because um, either their coverage is infrequent or it's very frequent but it's very mm -hmm. low resolution so they don't write about very much that's actually right. interesting and I think that might be one of the reasons why music blogs have not been as influential as the aggregation of online media has continued. I could still imagine a parallel right. universe where, um, where prominent music blogs continued to write really high quality content and those aggregators have continued to give them a prominent spot, but it does kind of seem like they've vanished. And I am by no means ripping on mm -hmm. every music blog writer out there. There's a lot of great ones, but the the mixture of is it high quality writing? Is it relevant to a very niche group of people? And is it consistent is really hard. And I'm curious right. how hard it will be for me as I'm exploring that. And hopefully some other people start doing it too. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's a great idea. Um, definitely, uh, more than willing to share my knowledge of podcasting if, if you need help and, and point you in the right direction for certain resources. But I, I think if you're passionate about something, um, and you want to talk about it, um, do it. That's the only way you're going to get better is by just doing it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I great, uh, jumping off point. Cause I, I've been reading a few of your newsletters and, uh, the last one you did about, uh, oh, what's his name? I'm from England. Peter I should Frampton. Know Peter Frampton. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, what you said in that, um, and we can we can talk through that, but it totally resonated with me because um, your opinion on that subject is pretty much why I set this uh, podcast up in the first place. Tell me about that. It's not so. I played in a band in New Hampshire when I lived there, and uh, a lot of people kind of my generation maybe a little bit younger a little bit older um i'd always hear meeting these people you can't make money you know by streaming you know and there was always this resistance to doing stuff like 
pushing the, the envelope on your social media or, or doing this idea or that idea, but you can't do it. And my, my whole frustration was instead of saying you can't say, how can I turn, turn the phrasing around and then kind of go out and find the different ways. Um, and so your, your article basically said, um, is a response to these big named artists coming out and saying, well, I made, you know, a hundred dollars on a million streams of this songs, but you've broken it down and saying, well, if you do the math and actually look at the, the way these uh, streaming deals are uh, orchestrated, um, these artists have given away like a sh shit ton of their, you know, rights for their songs. So that hundred dollars for a million streams is not because, I mean, I'll say this for listeners. I still think that Spotify has a long way to go and, and other streams of how much they pay, but that's a completely different argument. I think the argument is if you know where all your legal rights are from, you know, uh, performance royalties and streaming royalties and all these other areas, if you know where they are and how to get them, you're going to find that your your revenue is going to greatly increase um, because you've got all these different streams of income going on, depending on, you know, what you're doing. Um, and just to blanket say that, oh, because because this massive artist is only making a hundred dollars, but why is he only making a hundred dollars? You really have to dig further down. It's like false news. You, you really can't just trust one, you know, news resource. You have to go and find and do, you know, um, you know, scientific method and, and really follow through with your research to find out why. Or you have to read somebody who did. Yeah, exactly. I'm not making that claim for myself either. And thank you for reading it. Uh, it's a very small subscriber base right now. It's under 100 people. So it'll be interesting to reflect on where it's at later because podcasts live forever and you can always go yeah, back to them. Absolutely. But thanks again for that. Yeah, that was an interesting one to explore. And it's the one where I've got the deepest feedback so far now. Mm. I got more feedback on the one that I wrote called Reflecting on My Failure to Become a Professional Musician probably because it was a more personal and relatable topic. But this one, I got I got paragraphs and paragraphs from, from certain people back in my inbox and in my texts uh, because it was in the news too. That was the other thing. When I wrote mm -hmm. that one, it was, but like Daniel Eck was in the news a couple days, the CEO of Spotify, before I put that out. So it was an interesting thing to, uh, to put out that week. But my, uh, what, what incensed me uh, to to complete that uh, issue of the publication and and drove my opinion behind it was the argument that I sensed was out there, which was, oh, if, like you said, a major artist has such pitiful streaming revenue, how could it possibly work for an independent artist? Mm. And that's actually just begging the question because you can't just assume that we're getting paid at the same rate. We're actually getting paid at a hundred times almost that the rate that these major artists are from their yeah. stream songs because we actually hold the rights. Exactly. Now, of course we're not getting 55 million streams lifetime on a song until we've been in the game for many, many, many years. But just play it out, right? To compare apples to apples. Like, 
if I'm 50 years younger than Peter Frampton, which I probably am, you know, in 2068, how many streams am I going to have for one of my songs? It's possible that it could be that many. I mean, it's more likely that just the, the business environment will change and we'll be listening to music some other way. But if, if I'm comparing where I'm at right now, or even, uh, a professional younger artist, it's, it's not the same because the reason why that song got the 55 million streams, uh, all time, which would be from the beginning of the streaming era till when he wrote that tweet. So maybe 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. The reason why that song got 55 million streams in that 10 or 15 year period was because it had already been a loved song for 30 years. Yeah, so absolutely. if you're worried about the not everybody gets 55 million streams piece, it takes a lot of time and mm -hmm. it's a worthy feat that we should admire. And the, the fact that he signed away 99% of the revenue from that, it shouldn't discourage us. It should say the way we're doing it now is the proper way for the current conditions. And we can recognize that the way he did it then isn't the proper way anymore. And our success is going to be determined by countless things, but we can at least be sure that holding the rights looks empirically like a good strategy right now. For sure. And then, you know, just jumping off that, you know, who's to say that, you know, you're let's say you have jazz or um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think a better example would be ambient music. So if you're an ambient artist and you get yourself on a playlist that caters to spas and massage, um, you know, massage therapists and that massage therapist is a chain and they've got their music on repeat like 24 hours a day. Well, well, 24 hours, but let's just say it's, it could be, it could be a 24 hour salon or spa or something. But you know, if you, if you have that playlist on all the time on that business and that business is all over the country, who's to say you can't get 55 million streams if it's in on a playlist, that's like the most popular playlist for spas. Yeah. I'm just, just throwing what ifs out here, but you know, I, I don't see that being, um, that, uh, you know, that unprobable to be quite honest. Um, totally. And then the other thing I, I, I wanted to touch off is, uh, I've done that thing where I've, I've hit on a point and I've forgotten the other point. <laughs> Damn. Don't get old. It sucks. Um, is it still about Peter Frampton and streaming it's and definitely stuff about, something? Oh yeah, I know what it was. Um, so the other point I wanted to jump off was in your opinion, I mean, this, this might be a very, um, you know, hated point, but I, I have the feeling that a lot of artists tend to have this entitlement that you don't see anywhere else. Like if you train to be a plumber and then you buy your tools and then you go out and go into your own business, you know, I don't think a plumber has an entitlement to say, well, I've done all this training and I've bought all this expensive equipment. I should be a successful business person. But in the music industry, people put all this time in, they write their songs, and, and maybe this is a psycholo psychological thing because it's so personal, 
but they buy all this expensive equipment. And you see these memes. A, music, a musician is someone who's got $5,000 of equipment in a $500 car and they they get paid 50 bucks. But do, do you find that there's this entitlement that, well, I've put all this time in, I've put all this money in the equipment, I should be paid? Okay, so yes and no. There's a, I, I agree with with the kernel of what you're saying, but I do I want to retool it because sure. I wouldn't say that um I wouldn't say that really any of the artists I know in my life feel entitled, but mm. I think what's going on here is that being an artist has transitioned from a labor activity to a high leverage media activity. Now, what I mean by that is in the music industry in the 20th century, the artist was a laborer in the sense that they would provide their talent as a service in many ways. So as a recording artist, as a performing artist, as an ambassador of a brand or a sponsor, etc., etc., to other entities like record labels, music publishers, music licensors, or I guess licensees in that case. Yeah. Um, that's confusing. <laughs> uh, they would, so the, 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 the point being that the artist was providing the service basically as a form of labor because they were getting paid either lump sums or for their time as fees for performances or for advancing from record label and these other entities were the ones that had the leverage but those entities are declining i wrote the week before peter frampton issue about drake and how yep, i read that one you know like how lebron james has a bigger social media reach than the entire nba uh mm -hmm. drake has a bigger reach than pretty much everybody else in in the business and if he went independent he would demonstrate how there isn't really any need for a major label anymore. Mm. Um, the the power of of um, the the ability of those other players from the music industry we've known to continue to set the agenda in the future is diminishing, and what ends up happening is that uh, in order to have a great successful project that is part of a viable career the artist is the one who has to apply the leverage now and that means they have to invest in it up front mm -hmm. uh, it means they have to hold the rights like we were saying earlier at whatever cost which will also involve paying for things up front and hiring people and paying them well for their time such that you are still controlling the music and the songs that you produce and the recordings that you'll release. And the artist also has to uh, promote it with all different kinds of media and that media and that rights holding, that is all going to apply leverage to the viability of the project in that if it's good and if it gets traction and if people like it, um, the artist can very quickly get a compounding positive result back from that. Mm. But nobody else is really applying the leverage for the artist anymore and hiring the artist as a laborer. And artists who are used to that transaction 
probably don't understand what's going on right now and they don't know how to think about it yet that they are the ones who need to apply the right amount of leverage to make the right sized project that will fuel their career. I'm kind of blurting this out because I'm thinking about it live here, but does that make any sense? Absolutely 100%. <laughs> you are definitely speaking my language. Cool. Um, and I honestly, I, I think that would be a, a killer um, subject for a podcast. I mean, that's, that's kind of what my podcast is about. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and it, it all comes back to people's mindset and adapting to the change in the industry, which I think if people are stuck in the Led Zeppelin era, albums, you know, uh, labels, big budgets, it's just not happening anymore. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, it's so much more interesting for me to think about it this way than to say that artists feel entitled. Like, it's yeah. just too, it just seems too unfair to say that, oh, artists expect to be compensated the same way for their work today than they did in the 70s. Well, of course, that would be awesome. And like we've been alluding to, it is still possible. But mm. the the hidden fact is that they have to they have to lever up their music releases to achieve that uh, outcome for themselves and nobody's going to do it for them. Absolutely. And I, I also think that American Idol and, and America's Got Talent and all its, you know, global subsidiaries really do not help one bit. Like they are complete antithesis of that thinking. Cause it's you could like, almost think of that as like the the last gasp of music industry leverage applied to yeah, artists. I, talent I would. Yep. Yeah, you service. know what? It's probably it's probably industry kind of like uh, we're failing. Huh. Let's and that put on a talent show. And that got so much viewership in the 2000s and really produced stars. And I'm thinking about it now. And when when was the last time something like that? produce stars i think there's been a couple since then but the more famous story is like the justin bieber scooter braun youtube story which kind of immediately followed the american idol one mm. so i'm thinking about i'm thinking that it's almost in okay so this is a cool this is a cool evidence of this so um in the in the heyday of of 2000s fox american idol the show produced stars mm -hmm. it did appearing on that show and achieving something there made you a star but now i i don't watch these shows so i'm kind of talking out of school here i don't really know what's going on but i have the feeling based on headlines i've read over the years that all the attention that flows to those shows now is because the shows have hired celebrity judges mm -hmm. so all the star power of the show is in pre-existing artists that are are lending their leverage to the show Mm -hmm. so it's inverted in like 10 or 15 years where the only reason people know about like the voice is because of the the major artists that have judged it right. as opposed to the stars that the show itself with its with its strength is making mm. yeah totally agree um yeah i mean i i think back i i saw um adam lambert uh on tour with queen had to go see queen and, uh, you know, that's that's an evident, and he was on one of the first, I don't know, at least the first four, um, you know, series, I think, somewhere around there. Um, but yeah, you just, you're not seeing those big names come out of it anymore. Definitely. Um, awesome. 
I like to uh, move the conversation into a uh, non-quickfire question round. Um, what significant negative experience have you overcome and what did it teach you? I haven't overcome it yet, but the really significant one is the self-talk that I do. Mm. That's the major, major one. And it's still tough. I'm still working on it. I could still use more help for sure. But the help that I do have from friends and family is really helpful. I need to be better at reaching out to them when I need it. And that has been the big stumbling block in my career because in a situation where I don't have a boss and where I'm setting the agenda, if I'm feeling really negative about what I'm doing, it just all falls apart. So mm -hmm. the fact that I'm still going, even though that's been an ongoing thing for me for 15 years is pretty good, I guess. But I got a lot of work to do on that. Awesome. What major positive experience has given you the encouragement to follow this journey? It's got to be the mentorship that I got in both jazz and folk. So that was people my own age who were more experienced than me in high school. That was people that I met in my one year in music university who were keen to do projects with me and who recorded my first album with me. And it was the senior people in the nonprofit that I worked for who just gave me so much rope, even though I had so little experience. It's people taking chances on people. I think that's a beautiful thing about the arts is because it's such a relationship driven business. Mm. You will always remember when somebody takes a chance on you, when you feel like you didn't deserve it, or right. maybe that's not the best way to say it, but um, people, people granting opportunities on faith or on trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've gotten a lot, a lot of that and I'm really thankful for it. Awesome. Final question is what does music mean to you? Uh, it's one of the main things that makes life worth living, in my opinion. Short and sweet. Very powerful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, Thanks, so where, where can people find you and, and your music and what you're up to and read your blog, etc.? WilliamChernoff.com, the homepage. You'll find Rhythm Changes, which is that newsletter from there. Rhythm Changes is also delivered by email, and you can subscribe to it. And my website is the hub for everything that I do as an independent artist. If you want to check out my company, where we're working on broadcasting artists, local in Vancouver area, and live stream concerts. That's called Distance Media, with a couple letters taken out. So it's dstnce.com. So there and on my own website, you'll see what I'm up to. Awesome. Um, and at the end of the podcast, I like to play a song from the artist I interview. So what piece of music um, are we going to play on this episode? We're going to play Mackie Alkino, which is the last track from my first album, which is called Aim to Stay. So Mackie Alkino, you'll hear it on the album, which will come out in October. Awesome. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, it's the first tune that I ever wrote. I wrote it in 2010 in a three chord basement jam situation with my friends in high school. And it started my journey as a composer. So I still like to play it because it's an easy tune. It's a fun tune, funky one. Mm -hmm. And... I like this recording of it because it's my first real band in jazz. It's a quartet and uh, I'll give you, okay. I'll give you a, I'll give you an interesting fact about this because you're going to play the album track. Um, this, or the original session of this track was seven minutes long, but we had such a ridiculous arrangement of it where <laughs> we went to so many different time feels and stuff that it was just too much. So because we ended up sequencing it as the last track on 
the Aim to Stay album, we just did a board fade on the song in about three minutes and <laughs> took it out like it was CTI records from 1972 with Freddie Hubbard or something. But we just called it at a certain point and we kept it with the the simple, funky arrangement that it should have. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. This was a you know, really um, great conversation. Um, I'm sure we can do a part two and part three if we really wanted to. Um, so, you know, continued success. Um, look forward to, uh, you know, when the album comes out and, uh, you know, um, stay safe out there and thank you very much. Thanks so much, you too. And I'm looking forward to continue listening to your podcast. Thanks as always for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, then I'd be extremely grateful if you would. I have added a page on musiconyourownterms.com to allow you to do just that. On that page, I have added some eBay affiliate links to equipment I use on the podcast. If you buy anything from eBay with these links, then I earn a commission which really helps me continue to provide this great content to you, the listener. Stay up to date with the podcast and find out who I'll be interviewing in upcoming episodes before they air by signing up for the mailing list at musiconyourownterms.com. On the site, you'll also find show notes for every episode, some pretty cool videos to check out from various guests, and also links to their music and social media if you want to find out more. While you're there, don't forget to take a peek at the store and pick up something for your grandma. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is William Chernoff with Mackie Elkino.
Thank you.